so today we're picking up in our second installment of our Jonah series. Uh, last week, Ron introduced the book and explained how Jonah, out of his disobedience, neglected to fulfill uh, his assignment of, of taking a message to Nineveh and the people there. And he decided to head for Tarshish, which was in the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. Now, when we say that it was the exact opposite direction, I, I have a map. I thought the map would help you guys understand what that looks like. So you can see um, down on the right-hand corner where uh, where Jonah went to down to Joppa, and that's where he boarded uh, a ship headed for Tarshish, which is 200, uh, about 2,500 miles away. It would be a three-year journey to go there and back. Uh, this was the, the, the furthest known place uh, of, of the world at that time. So when we say opposite direction, we mean you can't go any further than uh, Tarshish. Um, and that's what Jonah decided to do. Um, and Ron did a great job of explaining, <clears throat> uh, and you can see you know, Nineveh is, is about 550 miles from, uh, from Joppa at that point. Um, and Ron did a great job of explaining the parallelism between Jonah's, uh, Jonah's, Jonah's descent physically um, of going down, 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 and paralleling his spiritual state of going down, 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 right? He goes to, down to Joppa, he gets down on the boat, he gets down in the water, and we'll see today as we go on with the spiritual side of it, that his spirituality, his, his relationship with God uh, did the same thing. It went down, down, down. Okay, so he was running from God, flat out. He told the sailors that he was running from the Lord. Uh, it's not a surprise, but guess what? God didn't like that. God said, mm, I don't think so. Here's a storm. Deal with it. And he, the storm came. They threw him overboard. He's in the water. Uh, and he and the rest of the sailors are absolutely convinced that he is going to die. This is where we're going to pick up in our narrative today. Uh, starting in, in Jonah chapter 1, verses 17. And right away, we see the main character of the story uh, lurking about, swimming around. You know who I'm talking about. Verse 17, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights. Now this story, Jonah and the whale, has permeated many cultures. Uh, Christian, Jewish, Islamic, secular. Uh, there's tons and tons of references. Probably the most referenced story that there is. Uh, but people have questioned for centuries as to whether it's a true story or not. Right? Questions come up, uh, like, can a man even survive in the belly of the whale? Wouldn't the, the stomach acids and the digestion process take place, and how could he live? Um, that's a great question. There are other accounts of people uh, being swallowed by whales. Uh, the most recent one that we know of was in 1890. There was a uh, captain of a ship named James Bartley, um, and he said that he fell overboard. He was swallowed by a sperm whale, lived inside of that sperm whale for uh, over a day, and was spit up and was able to make it back to shore. Um, so that, that's the most recent account that we know of. It's not like this happens every week. You, know, you, don't, you don't go to the, to the ocean and say, yeah, I had a great, trip the, a great, great trip to the beach. Oh, yeah? What whale swallowed you? Was it a sperm whale or a blue whale? This doesn't happen. So, you know, that's the most recent account that we have. Now, there are speculations as whether that story was true, but nevertheless, there still remains accounts outside of the Bible of someone being swallowed by a whale. Um, but then th there's other questions. Uh, is there a fish or a sea creature large enough to actually swallow a man whole? Uh, there's a, a little girl. 
she went on a field trip with her class and her teacher was, they were at the ocean. Um, the teacher was explaining, you know, even though the, the whale is so big, despite mis, uh, misconceptions, its throat is actually relatively small. So it's impossible for a whale to small, swallow a man whole. And uh, the little girl says, oh, but teacher, Jonah got swallowed by a whale. And the teacher can say, no, that, that's physically impossible. It, it's just not, it, it's, it can't happen. And the, teacher, or the, the girl says, well, I'll ask Jonah when I get to heaven. And the teacher says, well, what if Jonah didn't go to heaven? And the girl says, well, then you ask him. (laughs) It's an interesting fact that scientists um, say we know very little about space, right? Very little. Did you know that we know even less about the depths of our own ocean? It is much more difficult to to explore and travel in the ocean than it is in space. Um, And there are many anomalies that have left us wondering about the ocean and what's out there. Uh, One such anomaly is called the bloop. Have you heard of the bloop? In 1997, there was a sound recorded underwater by hydrophones that were, you know, 3,000 miles away from, from the epicenter of this bloop, this sound wave. It was the loudest recorded sound on, on record. Um, and we have absolutely no evidence at, as to what that bloop was. They called it the bloop because it just sounds like bloop. Um, yeah, so people have studied it, and they say, well, you know, it's probably like an iceberg breaking off or, or a, a, you know, mud a, a mudslide underwater that's causing the sound, and it's all rushing. Um, but something of that magnitude, something th- th- that would cause the loudest sound to be recorded would naturally have some kind of effect, whether a tsunami across the, the ocean or something like that. There was no record of that. Um, but other people have analyzed it, and they said, you know, this sound wave is, is very similar to something that we would find uh, in, from more of a biological source, something like a whale, just the way the sound wave is shaped. Um, so, you know, then it comes out, oh, there's a giant sea monster, and people are drawing up renditions of what they think this, this bloop looks like. Um, so is it possible for a man to be swallowed by a sea creature? Um, none that we know of in our limited knowledge. Um, but if the bloop is actually from a biological source, then undoubtedly there is a creature out there big enough to actually do that. Um, unfortunately, the whale in Jonah 2 has taken center stage for us. In reality, the whale plays a very, very small part. It's given two verses. It swallowed Jonah and spit him up. That's it. It's, it's, it's incredible how, despite these associations uh, we make with the name of Jonah, that we think that this story is about a, a man and a whale. Uh, but that story is called Moby Dick. Uh, that, that is not Jonah. Um, Jonah is a, is a story about a man and God's message that he wanted to deliver through that man. Right, a message of, of repentance. So whether it's possible for a man to survive in the belly of a whale, whether this is a historical event or a fictional narrative, um, really, in my opinion, has, has little to no bearing on the validity of the story. Because the validity isn't found in the whale. The validity is found in the message of what God is trying to say. 
So I personally believe that it is a historical event. I think it's filled with supernatural um, intervention from, from God, which as so many of the things that we see in the Bible are, and Jesus would agree in Matthew 12. Um, but even if it's not, it, it still delivers the same message, a message of repentance, a message of mercy. That's the point of Jonah, not the whale. So now that we've got that out of the way, let's see what the whale has to do with the message of repentance. All right, again, verse 17, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. There's a common motif in the Bible of this three days and three nights and that, that kind of uh, length of time. Um, Genesis 22, Abraham takes uh, Isaac up to the altar on Mount Moriah, and it's a three-day journey. In Exodus 15, after the Israelites are led out of Israel, I mean, out of Egypt, they travel for three days until uh, God gives them palatable water. Um, Hosea marks a prophecy about being restored and revived after three days. And of course, the most famous reference is Jesus being in a tomb for three days and three nights, amongst other uh, examples. And there seems to be something very special about this, this time frame of three days and three nights and the process that these, these people go through during that time where they are giving, given the, the ability to choose for themselves to act upon God's sovereignty. They're going to consider what type of role they're going to play in what God wants to do in their lives. And, and it's interesting that each one of these journeys, the, the people in the story, they are taken to the absolute brink of death before coming back to full life. And Jonah's experience is no different. God had given them, him the task of taking the message of repentance to Nineveh. Uh, which we said he's, he neglected to obey, and now has found him at, at, at death's doorstep in the belly of a fish. As we go into verse 2, he said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. It's interesting to note that this is the first time that we see Jonah addressing God. In chapter 1, we know he's given the message, but there's no uh, quote as to him responding, yes, I'll go, no, I'm not going to go, he just disobeys. Uh, in chapter 2, when the storm comes and the ship is about to get ripped apart, Jonah's the only one who's not praying. He doesn't talk to God at all, but here in, in chapter 2, um, in the depths of, the, of distress, we see that Jonah, he is the first time he utters anything to God. And this is a great example of the physical distance that he's attempting to put between him and God, paralleling the spiritual distance that's actually happening between him and God. Specifically, um, the reference to the realm of the dead. That's a translation of the word sheol. And as Ron explained last week, Sheol is basically the holding place for the dead, according to Jewish belief. And, and, and Jonah um, is, is saying, you know, it's to this extent that his spirit has been removed from the Lord. He is in the depths of the dead at the entrance of Sheol. But what's fascinating, what's, what's so wonderful to see is that last line in that, uh, that phrase. It says, and you listened to my cry. 
And I read that and I think, what, what just a, a wonderful phrase to attach to such a dismal picture of being separated from God, sinking down, 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 even to the depths of Sheol, and still God's mercy can still reach the repentant there. What a fantastic phrase that is. Now the function of verse 2 in this this psalm, we'll call it, um, is basically an experience of Jonah's, or a summary of of Jonah's experience. Um, He's in distress, he calls out to God, and God answers him. It's verses 3 through 6 that we see the specifics of what the suffering entailed. So verse 3, you hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the sea, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. So in this moment, this is the moment that Jonah is tossed overboard. He splashes into the water. The, undoubtedly, the, the shock of the cold water is, is, is exhilarating and his adrenaline's pumping. The, the boat slowly drifts away and he's in the water by himself being swirled around by this dark, uh, devastating breakers. The, the waves are white. Uh, the caps of the waves are breaking down on him. He's trying to reach, trying to swim, trying to thrash about, choking on water, trying to gasp for air, just trying to stay afloat. This is what's going on for him in this moment. In verse 4, he said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. As Jonah is trying to desperately stay above water, the sea proves to be too much for him. And it continues to thrash and force him down, 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 completely surrounding him um, with the deep, dark water. And he's grabbing for anything that he can feel, desperately holding on, grab some seaweed. But as the current continues to thrash him, it breaks apart, surrounds his face and like a net, and he just cannot escape. He's drowning. And he gives up hope. And he finishes his encounter. He says, to the roots of the mountains I sink down. The earth beneath me barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. This is what's crazy about the way we view things. Uh, The majority of Jonah's psalm doesn't describe a fight between a man and a whale. It doesn't even describe uh, the experience that a man would have in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. It centers on the experience of someone drowning. We tend to miss that. A lot. Jonah's tossed over into the depths. The currents are swirling around him, breaking down. He's engulfing to the the bottom where seaweed wraps around his head. He's on the seafloor, the roots of the mountains as he describes it. And this is where verse 1 comes in. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. He gave up realizing the futility in trying to fight against God's will. And his consciousness was slipping away as everything was just fading to black. He calls out to the Lord. And it was at this point, this moment, that God commanded the whale to swallow up Jonah. And the whale 
brought his life up from the pit. The whale brought his life up from shale. That's how this story goes. It's the physical experience of Jonah that he went through, the drowning. Uh, but like we said multiple, multiple times, this experience parallels the spiritual happenings of Jonah. Key phrases like, uh, you hurled me into the depths. I've been banished. The deep surrounded me to the roots of the mountains. I sank down. Each of these phrases are, are just rich in, in Semitic symbolism. It was believed that um, the water is what separated the land from, of the living from the land of the dead. And the concept of earth was that the land was held up by these, these two subterranean mountains. Um, in, in other places like 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8, it's referred to the pillars of the earth. So you can imagine these, these two mountains, these two pillars that are holding up the land, right, underneath it. This is their belief. And, and in between it is a valley. And it was believed that that valley was the entrance point to the pit, to Sheol. So once where Jonah stood in the temple worshiping the Lord, uh, considering the, you know, the pinnacle of where God's presence resided, he has now found himself falling, falling down, down, down to the uh, point of the entrance of Sheol. And at this point is spiritually the furthest anyone could find themselves from the Lord, spiritually speaking. And he repeats and reaffirms his desperate situation in verse 7. He says, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. And then uh, a realizing points stick with him in verse 8. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Fantastic verse. So much practical theology in that verse. Um, but interestingly enough, the question that comes up the most uh, that I've seen in conversation or with, um, in studying is whether or not Jonah was truly repentant. Whether or not he, he truly uh, changed his heart and changed his mind. Because we see in chapter 4 that he gets mad at God for extending that mercy and not bringing his judgment down. So, but I was amazed as I was studying through this, the amount of commentaries I read that believed Jonah was never truly repentant, even in the middle of being in the belly of the whale during this prayer. They say things like, uh, he doesn't lack any, or he lacks a confession that he did something wrong. Um, they say things like, uh, there was no contrition of the heart, just gratitude of being saved. Um, it, it sounds as though his, he thinks his prayer is what saved him. And then even to the point in verse 8 where um, they, they take that, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love, that he's judging the sailors on the ship that are floating away because they were worshiping false gods. You can make an argument for this, and it sounds good. I took a bunch of notes, and I was ready to present that, but the more I sat with it, the more I meditated on it, the, the less it spoke to me. I just can't fathom someone, uh, a prophet of God nonetheless, being taken to the point, to the brink of death, drowning, being saved, uh, and in the belly of the well going, those fools, <laughs> worshiping other gods. <laughs> Eggs on their face. You know what I'm saying? Like, that just doesn't, doesn't compute with me. And, and I, I, I look at verse 8 and I study it some more. I think verse 8 is a confession to his sin. 
Not a judgment of the other sailors. His, his pride became his idol. And his pride is what caused him to run from the Lord and his assignment in the first place until God allowed him to be taken to that brink of death, at which point he relented, he gave up, reoriented himself towards God, and was delivered. I think it's obvious that Jonah truly repented. Whether or not he, rema- he um, maintained that repentance, that's a different question because Clearly, he didn't. But in this moment, I believe Jonah did truly repent. And I think the next verse is confirmation of that. In verse 9, he goes on to say, But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. So in a moment of realization, I believe Jonah's heart and his mind did change. He says that he will sacrifice uh, to God and he will make good what he has promised. Now, it's believed that this was not Jonah's first assignment, nor his only assignment. So um, it would make sense that he is, is vowing uh, to uh, make good what he's promised in the fact that he's willing to go on in being a prophet and answering that call of being a prophet, um, which would then make sense that, that the sacrifice he's making is actually going to Nineveh where he could find himself in in desperate uh, situations of of being uh, killed and still delivering that message. He's making that sacrifice to the Lord. And it's this newfound realization and appreciation of God's salvation that is the fuel that, that, you know, gives Jonah the jumpstart to uh, go tell the Ninevites salvation comes from the Lord. It's interesting that Jonah attempted to thwart God's salvation by running from uh, his assignment. He hoped that God would utterly obliterate the Ninevites and his judgment would come down on them. But what he was surprised to find that because of his obedience, he found that same judgment coming down on him. But because of God's merciful nature, God extended the same mercy to Jonah that he wanted to give to the Ninevites. So Jonah was experiencing this judgment and, 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 and mercy. Moreover, the mercy, moreover, the love of God that he was trying to uh, withhold from other people. That gets you to think when you do that. And when he realized that, verse 10, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Ending our passage for today. I want you to take a look at the map again. We think that, um, at least I think, that uh, Jonah was spit up on the shores of Nineveh, right? Uh, because, you know, it just kind of go into the next chapter and he's already at Nineveh. But that's, that, that can't be the case. So if he got on Joppa and, and we don't know where he went, we don't know where the, sw- the whale swallowed him, uh, but most people believe he, he ended up back at Joppa. Uh, Best case scenario, he got spit up on the shores of modern-day Turkey right up here, which is still 350 miles away from Nineveh. He had um, a true change of experience because this would be a a weeks-to-months journey going all the way to Nineveh. He had a bunch of time to turn back. 
So this wasn't an emotional decision as we tend to make in America. This was a, 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 a thought-out, intentional decision that he had to make. Yeah? But the entire way, every step, God's judgment and God's salvation was in front of Jonah, constantly reminding him of God's mercy. The call to deliver a message to a depraved city, the storm, uh, the drowning, the fish. And now as Jonah would, would plod along day by day, at least for the next few days, possibly even a week, he would have a very tangible reminder of his own experience, his own salvation experience. And that would be the fish bile that he was covered in, right? That would, that would be a, a smell that he would carry with him until it washed off or, or, or you know, dried up. Um, it would be a, a, a genuine memento reminding him of what God did for him. Jonah is such a, a small book, but it's just jam-packed with stuff that we can chew on and, and, and see how our lives line up with his and what God would have us do. But I want to take a look um, just for a few minutes, specifically in verse 8 and, and, and onward, um, because like I said earlier, there's a lot of practical theology um, in the last few verses. So let's pull up verse 8 again and, and read that one more time. It says, Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. So quickly, let's define what an idol is. Um, he, here's the, the best generic idol um, definition that I, that I found. Anything that you've given extreme devotion to. Anything that you've given extreme devotion to. It could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing. Doesn't matter the purpose of it. The, the, what matters is how much devotion that you've given to it. And if you've given as much devotion as it takes precedence uh, before God, then that thing is an idol in your life. So, so what might be an idol for you? What have you uh, devoted your time to, your thoughts to, your energy, your money, um, that, that you think very well might take away from your relationship with God because it distracts you from him? Think about that for a second. And keep that in mind. Because again, here's what verse 8 tells us. Verse 8 tells us you cannot receive God's mercy as long as you are holding on to that idol. You have to give it up and, and let go and no longer cling to it. The sailors in the ship, they, they saw exactly what God was capable of doing. Um, they prayed to their idols. They rowed as hard as they could. But it wasn't until they stopped fighting and gave up and looked to God that they experienced the mercy. Ninevites, again, they were doing the, living in their own sin, worshiping their idols. Jonah took the message, as we'll see in chapter 3. Um, in chapter 4, they turn away from their idols. They give up and they repent, reorient themselves to God, and they see uh, God's merciful hand upon them. And Jonah, again, it's not until he is at the depths of destruction um, that he is able to let go of his own idol, his pride. And he was able to experience uh, God's compassionate mercy. But he held on to that pride for a long time. I, I would think that if someone was in a dire situation being on a ship, that's getting ready to capsize in the middle of the ocean, that, that would be enough, but not for Jonah. His pride uh, really sank into him. 
And he, in his thinking, he clung on to that because that, to him that was worth more than what God wanted when in actuality he was hanging on to a completely worthless idol. So because he was hanging on to that worthless idol, clinging to it, he, he turned away from God's love and it wasn't until he let go of his idol that he was able to experience God's mercy and again he was delivered once he did that. So what might your idol be? Because in a sense, when you have an idol in your life, when you have some, something that's, that you've extremely devoted yourself to, here's what you're saying to God. In a sense, you're saying, I don't trust you to love me enough to fill the void enough of what that idol is filling in my life. You name it, pride, uh, anxiety, depression, uh, addictions, uh, work, video games, uh, hover parenting, um, not being able to move on from the past and constantly dwelling over that constant anger, constant fear, uh, politics, uh, codependent relationships, whatever that might be, whatever we are overly devoted to, anything of that sort, if we're clinging on to it, we're saying, God, I know you're real, I love you, but I don't trust you enough to love me enough. Because this thing that I'm holding on to, that's what I'm looking for to fill my life up. I, for one, cling to control. Me? No. Shut up, Clifton. Clifton clings to it more than me. <laughs> no, but I do cling to control. I, I, I admittedly try to control situations, people's opinions. I will tell you what you think and have no problem doing that. Uh, people's actions, instead of just leaving life to happen and God's sovereignty to reign. Um, uh, it's a form of pride. Just like Jonah, he tried to control Nineveh's fate uh, by leaving this, the, uh, the assignments. Um, and even in the most recent example in our discussions about me going into teaching, there were times that I went into conversations and I tried to control uh, people's thoughts and what they thought of what I was presenting and things like that. Um, and it wasn't until that, that I, I was able to see that that was uh, what I was doing. I apologized and, you know, we had some heated arguments about it. But we were able to work past that because um, God is a gracious God and he extends mercy to us. And we were, we were able to uh, forgive and, and move past that because I was able to let go of that, um, of that idol. I, I wasn't clinging to it any longer and I reoriented myself to God uh, and allowed his sovereignty to happen. So, so what is your idol and, and how often, how, how hard do you find yourself clinging to it? Uh, and, you know, for, it, it may be very subtle. You might not even know that you are hanging on to an idol. We have to examine ourselves for that. Nonetheless, the fact is that if you do have an idol, you're forsaking the mercy that God has waiting in the wings. And just like Jonah, we've got to stop fighting we have to let go and reorient ourselves to God so we can experience that mercy. And that segues uh, into the next point, which is on mercy. Jonah exclaims in the end, I will say salvation comes from the Lord. 
Now, we, we think that um, Jonah was inside the belly for three days and three nights, and so once he was spit up on dry land, God saved him. That's what, that's what we think. Uh, but in actuality, uh, that's not the case at all. If you look again at his prayer, at his psalm, he's thanking God inside the belly of the whale. Yeah? He's not being saved from the whale. He's being saved by the whale from drowning. That's something we tend to miss because um, it's an important thing because... uh, Salvation doesn't always happen the way we think. Deliverance doesn't always happen the way we think. Do you think Jonah was in the drowning and he calls out to God and he thinks, I know what will happen. God will send a whale. It will swallow me and spit me up on land. Do you think that was going through Jonah's mind at all? No, probably not. He was probably going, ah, ah, I'm drowning, I'm drowning, right? Probably. <laughs> but that reminds us, yes, salvation absolutely does come from the Lord, but salvation doesn't come in the way that we always expect it. I don't know about you, but when I pray and I'm looking for some deliverance, it rarely happens the way I think it's going to happen. Most of the time, it looks like nothing I ever would have imagined. And there's no better example of this than the way we receive eternal salvation. Because that's what this is all about. The entire story of Jonah points to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In response to criticism of providing a legitimate evidence for his ministry, um, Jesus makes mention of the, the prophetic symbolism that, that is found in Jonah, and it, it parallels Jesus' resurrection. In Matthew 12, 39 through 41, it says, He answered, A wicked and adulterous de- generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be there three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. So the sign of Jonah underscores salvation in terms of who Jesus was. His experience, uh, references, uh, his experience and references to Sheol um, point to the death of Christ. Being swallowed by a huge uh, whale points to Jesus being in the tomb for three days and three nights. And finally, miraculously, he's being spit up out on land, ready to deliver that message of repentance to Nineveh. That points to Jesus rising from the dead, leaving the empty tomb behind, and in order that he may bring life to everyone who may believe. That is the manner that God has chosen to save us. And, and typically in our thinking, that is not how we would expect to be saved. We, we tend to think that we have to um, do things. We tend to think that we have to uh, be good enough and work hard enough in order to uh, earn favor in order to get into heaven. Whether you know that or not, sometimes we don't know that. Do you know what I'm saying? We, we might realize that in our head, but our heart is, is doing something different because our heart's telling us, oh, this can't be. We have to do good things. It's counterintuitive to to any of our uh, natural thinking and is completely different than any other religion out there. But just like Jonah, salvation came to us in the way we wouldn't expect it. It came as a gift from the Lord, not by our hands, 
but a gift of grace through faith so that we have no room to brag about saving ourselves, according to Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. We can try all we want. We can stretch and grasp and try to grab something that will stabilize us, make us feel that we're worthy enough to get into, he- into heaven, but it will all be in vain because those things were burned up because they don't matter. Isaiah says that, that our righteous deeds, our righteous actions are like filthy rags next to God. And just like Jonah, it's not until we stop fighting it, until we let go of that control of trying to save ourselves that we can reorient ourselves to God and what he wants to do. We can repent and look to him as our salvation and our savior because he's the only one that can do it. We just, it it's something that just it needs to be accepted in your heart. We need to admit that we're a, sa- a sinner in the need of a savior. We need to believe that Jesus died on the cross to save us from those sins. We need to choose to follow him and put our faith in him alone. And when we do that, the cross, the tomb, the resurrection of Jesus, everything that the sign of Jonah points to, that begins to take on brand new meaning, which leads us into the last thing that I want you to see. Um, We talked about work and being good enough. Work is definitely part of the equation, but we, we work because of our salvation experience. See, Jonah didn't go on to complete his work until he repented and reoriented himself to God and looked to him for salvation. Once he did, he went on to Nineveh, uh, delivered the message of repentance, and, and, and God worked from there. Um, so work is definitely part of the equation, but we don't work, we don't do good things in the sense of, of, of working for God in order to be saved. We do good things in the sense of working for God because we are saved. Honestly, this is one of the things that excites me the most about going into teaching. Um, since I've started subbing, I, and my Oikos list is just, has just filled up. Uh, people I would have never imagined I'd talk to. Um, people coming to me and just opening up their lives about, about problems with children, about problems with family, um, conversations about whether or not God exists and the validity of the Bible in itself. These, these are things that are all just so awesome. Um, that I never, mm, let me be honest, sometimes if you're in vocational ministry, your oikos might not be as big as someone else's who's not in vocational ministry. Um, The the pastors are typically, you know, helping out the congregation and and ministering to them while people are going out, Um, but we're not in a secular position like most people. Um, So, some of these conversations I've honestly not had much opportunity to do because I've been in ministry for so long. And I'm so excited about being able to put myself in a secular position where I can have these conversations. It's it's exciting and and it's wonderful. Um, And and it makes me ask the question because uh, this is what I intend to leave here with. Uh, The question is, are you inspired by your salvation enough to share it with other people? Are you inspired by your salvation enough to share it with other people? Salvation is awesome, and sharing that experience is awesome, but it's scary. It's scary to put yourself out there. I mean, what if I say something wrong? What if they just blow me off like some crazy? It's not our job to worry about it. Worry is a form of control, right? 
We have to trust in God. If we're reorienting ourselves to God and taking this seriously, we have to trust him and his salvation and what he's going to do just like Jonah did. And I'll tell you what, Jonah's audience was way worse than anyone that we'd encounter here in America for the most part. Much, much worse. But the miracle of Jonah's salvation was not merely um, to, to, to save him from drowning. It's not a, a story. It's not a sign of saving someone from drowning. Um, the story and the sign was to save people from drowning in sin. The miracle was to point to the death and resurrection of Christ, which saves all of us from drowning in sin. That's the point of this story today, and that's the job that we have in front of us to take our experience of salvation and share it with others and tell them how God can deliver them too. Are you inspired enough by your salvation experience to share it with others? In the end, we can see that this is so much more than a story about a man and a whale. Yeah, you know, whale schmale, who cares? It's a story about a God and the extent of how much he loves each and every one of us. I'm going to read one more verse that, that sums it up so well, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ closed that gap. Jonah deserved to be judged. He deserved to be sent to Sheol. And God sent that whale, using that whale, to close the gap between, in their relationships. Not something that Jonah did. It's everything that God did. You and I, we deserve to be judged. We deserve to be sent to hell. But through Christ, his death and his resurrection, God closed that gap between us and him. Not anything we did, everything that God did. And I hope and I pray that all of us would be inspired by that uh, salvation experience enough to go out and share it with others. Amen? Let's pray. God, you are wonderful, and I never cease to be amazed at the way you save us, I, at the, the many uh, inklings and parallels that we see of your salvation, how much you love us and how often you close the gap because we're just not able to. Help us, God, to let go of those idols that we cling so tightly to. Help us not to forsake our own uh, the mercy that you have for us, God, but reorient ourselves, give up fighting, and hang on to you for all that we are, all that we do, and all that we believe. Bless us this day, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.